Okay. <clears throat> Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you've enjoyed me clearing my throat 5,000 times. Sorry. <clears throat> this is my life. Anyway, you know, we're going to be away for a few days, and so this is being recorded earlier and will be posted on the proper day <clears throat> if we have connections. We're going to try to make sure that happens. One of the things we're going to do as we're away is a short wedding. Weddings can be beautiful things. And this wedding scene here is the most beautiful of all. Let's dive right in, shall we? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. <clears throat> For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Wow. Think of this imagery. Think of these pass this passage. Then I want to ask you, have you heard these before? If you're church people, I would imagine you have. Next question. How were they applied in the sermons and classes? I would imagine almost all of you would say, well, this is about the end of time. This is about the judgment day. It was when, when, when the world will melt to fervent heat and this is, that's what this is. But is that how they would have heard it? The people to whom the book was written. These are people who have been shamed, starved, driven out of their jobs. The, the cultural circles that cement society together, driven out driven into poverty to where they had no funds to even wash themselves or have clothes that weren't torn up. They're, they're dirty, smelly, scarred, broken, but to God, they are beautiful. They're, they're his bride. He sees none of their faults. He only sees his love for them and that makes them beautiful. God's not only cleaned them up, he has made them in a way that we cannot quite gather at the moment, just supremely lovely. Those of you that have been uh, caught in the Mandalorian uh, chapters as it went on Disney recently, you know about the social media phenomenon of Baby Yoda very, very cute. You know, I watched it. I enjoyed it as well. Um, and Baby Yoda was, was a lot of fun and I think an inspired character for them to bring in. However, had you been in the delivery room and you or your wife delivers something that looked like this, you would be horrified. The newspapers would be called. Nurses would be losing their lunch. And yet, in a different context, in a different telling of a different story, Baby Yoda just absolutely captured the imaginations of all, and people bought little Baby Yoda plush toys and 
um, you know, talking toys, <coughs> stickers, t-shirts. How did that thing get to be looked upon as the height of cuteness? Because it was telling a different story in a different place. God's telling your story and he tells it in a different way than we would tell it. So when he sees us, he loves us. And did you notice that this is a, he is coming down to live with us, not to judge and, you know, kick people and to live with us. And he will be present with us in all of our trials. Now, it's really important that we, we get this. So we're going to expand that a little bit. All of our tears, he will wipe away. When I was a boy, I had some real cognitive dissonance whenever we would sing the song, No Tears in Heaven. And we were in a, a little Appalachian place for a while and they sang it. Um, I'll never forget the cadence that they used. It wasn't quite the tempo the song was written for, but it was, it's beautiful for them. And they did this, this cadence of, you know, almost like a driving a nail, no tears in heaven, no sorrows given. All will be glory in that land. Well, they're not all wrong, but I think there will be some tears. I don't understand all of it and all the why, except that heaven is already here and it's coming. So it's not an event so much as a process for us, at least so far in human history. And I believe we can show that as we go through, all right? Um, and by the way, I've had people say, well, no, they try to they try to make this stuff all work logically. And they'll say, well, no, the tears are at the entry point, and then there are no more tears. Okay. I'm, I'm not on that page yet, but if that's where you are, I'm not God, I'm not in charge of the tears production or wiping thereof. So if you were a Jew or a Gentile convert, uh, who, who had known the scriptures, who had read, heard them read, maybe even got to read them themselves, which has been a rare treat. You would have known that the language in this chapter was very, very familiar to you. And it would recall to you Isaiah 13, 24, I'm sorry, 13, 25, 34, and 65. All four of those use this type of language, but it's about a judgment on a different country and about freedom at a different age, uh, in a different age for the, for the Israelites. Or uh, you might remember Ezekiel 32 or Nahum. That's a real book in the Bible. It's amazing we don't preach those little ones. Nahum chapter one. This imagery would have been very familiar to you because this is the way God talks about bringing judgment upon a people, but also washing away the sins of his people who he loves. And the guarantee here is outstanding in every way. Look at verse four again. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. That's the word I want to look at here. Death in the Semitic languages always means separation. And you have to look at the context to decide, is it looking at physical death? Or is it looking like Adam and Eve, where they were separated from God? Uh, the day they ate thereof, they surely died. They were separated from God at that stage. How does, how does all of this, what's the promise mean? And why are we thrilled at the promise? Well, it, become, it means that God is now living with us 
and he will never stop living with us. He is in us, among us, around us, and we can also say that we are in him, around him, and through, it, it's just, we are saturated with God, and he is, his love saturates us to the point where he only sees the beauty, he only sees the good. The people of God will still suffer. The people who are hearing this are still going to suffer, but they will never suffer alone. And that's critically important. I believe I got this story from Lewis Smedes, S-M-E-D-E-S, Lewis Smedes, who's passed on now. Uh, he wrote a book called Forgive and Forget, which by the way is a horrible title, and he agrees it's a horrible title, but it's a great book, Forgive and Forget. I believe it was in there that I heard the story, so I would imagine he got the story from somewhere else that um, one time in the, um, the death camps, the Nazi death camps, there, one of the young boys, I think he was about 14 years old, had been caught stealing a crust of bread because he was starving. And he stole this crust of bread from a German and the Germans then decided, well, he's a thief. And they hung him in front. They made everybody stand and watch. And this wasn't the old hanging where you drop and breaks the neck and it's over. This was a slow strangulation hanging. One of the Jewish men turned to his rabbi there. They're all emaciated. They're all dirty, covered with lice, and now they're watching this. And the man looked at the rabbi and he goes, where is your God now? And the rabbi with tears in his eyes pointed at the boy. And he said, he's up there with him. That's the promise. Amazing. We're, we're not separated from God already, and we won't be later. That's the promise. Take a look at chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. First of all, this is a very Middle Eastern way of declaring law. Think of, you know, I have written what I have written, uh, what you have, um, the, uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians can never be changed. Do you remember this? And that's worked its way into literature. Um, you, know, you had uh, Patrick Stewart in Star Trek's uh, Next Generation, I think it was called, where he would say, um, you know, let it be done, um, or go do it, or so be it, or something like that. You can tell I'm a real sci-fi fan. Um, in The Mandalorian, they would always say, it is the way, it is the way. Well, that all comes from this Middle Eastern diktat that would just say, or fiat, that would go, I've said it, it's law, it cannot be changed. But did you notice something else here? The language is one of process and event. I am making everything new. That is still going on right now. And yet, the words are already true. God doesn't dwell in physical time as we do. And so some of these sentences can be a little strange to us. And what we do is we default. We default to the most comfortable usual. So we would say, oh, okay. And we move on instead of saying, we're, we're being made new and we are new. Same time. 
it's, um, you know, I love, God's patience is a blessing, that being made new. His patience is a great blessing, even though it can feel like a curse when God has patience even with our enemies, because he doesn't move against our enemies. It's still good news, because you know why? He doesn't move against their enemies, which might be us. The same patience that saves them, saves us. If you deny that, you deny this. Don't do that. We cannot see every movement of God now. And we cannot understand why he acts and why he does not act. But what is real will slowly be revealed. If I may, I would truly believe that if people read two books that have been out in the last few years and really absorbed the information, I would be halfway out of a job because I do a lot of speaking with law enforcement, military groups, hospital groups, nursing home administrators, you know, all of them about fear and about our fear-saturated society and how we can respond to fear with facts and with learning a new way to process information. Uh, Hans Rosling, R-O-S-L-I-N-G, wrote a book called Factfulness. Factfulness, uh, one L in his made up word. Uh, it is subtitled 10 Reasons Why We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. Now, this is not some conservative saying, come on, people, you know, things are really good. Hans Rosling is a socialist uh, from Scandinavia that works for the United Nations. He would be the one you might think would write a book on how everything is horrible and we must now put big controls on everything. But he uses every metric from being able to, uh, girls being able to go to school and go to school safely, how long, uh, how are, are you able to upwardly mobile in your job? Uh, do you have access to nutritious and safe food, to water that is clean and safe? What level of medical care do you have access to? And he does all of these metrics and every single one of them are massively more positive now than they were 20 years ago and just off the charts better than they were 100 years ago. So why do we feel so terrible? Because the world lives on fear. But God is redeeming the world. Even atheists see it. And, and atheists write a book such as The Moral Ark, where they see that the universe is bending toward justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. used to say. Um, all of that, and even atheists see it, but they don't see is God is making all things new. By the way, the other book would be Daniel Gardner, um, Daniel Gardner's book, The Science of Fear. You know, those two books alone are really worth your money in 2021. Ah, you may want to throw in Greg Boyd's Freedom, or um, Repenting from Religion. It has nothing to do with any of this. It's just really important. Moving on. That Amazon does not give me a kickback, I promise. I want to, this is a really fascinating passage here. Um, starting in verse six, he said to me, I, it, it, it's done. Now see, it, I'm doing it and it's done is not a contradiction to God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the, uh, the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. 
but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And that's the second death. That's a separation that um, will not ever end because it's eternal. They're, they're gone. They cease to be. I mean, we could do the whole Monty Python dead parrot sketch here. They are gone. They are bereft of life. It's just, they're over. Now who, and by the way, why would he put that in here? Because this is a book being read to Christians who are being persecuted, but boy, they're about to be more persecuted. So why are they being warned here? I think a clue might be the first in the list of the sins here, cowardly. It's interesting. Uh, in Proverbs 6, the list of things that God hates, the first one he mentions is haughtiness. Eyes that look down on other people. That's really interesting because murder and all that comes under this. Well, the fact is that you can't murder people, rape people, abort people. Do You cannot do any of these things unless you think of yourself and your needs as more valuable than theirs. Well, what's going on here? They're going to be challenged on their faith constantly. And God is saying, don't be a coward. Earlier in the New Testament, it talks about a group of people who are so blessed by God because they did not love their life so much as to shrink back from death. God appreciates the people who stand up and who don't bend. You don't have to get in people's faces. I don't have to go to the restaurant and grab the ceiling fan and as I'm swinging around scream, you're all going to hell. That's not helpful. And probably theologically suspect in the extreme. No, it just means that when pushed to deny your faith, that you don't. There was a boy, I mean, a little boy, they'd say, now when the communists take over, there's never an if, <laughs> there's never an if. When the Russian tanks come into our streets um, and they make it illegal to go to church, Will you still go? What a horrible thing to say to kids. It's like they're in charge of going to church now. Well, we'd all go, oh, we wouldn't deny our faith. We have no idea. Here's the thing. They were equating going to church with being a faithful Christian. You know, if there are a few tanks between you and the building, I don't think you gotta go there. Be the church, wherever you are. And that's our safe harbor church is a be the church wherever you are. And so literally thousands every week engage with us from now we're up to four countries that we know about. And we think there's a fifth one that hasn't yet checked in saying, hey, we're from here. Could be because of the country they're in. Uh, it's not always safe to do that. But again, just be the church out there. But if you're pushed, you don't deny Jesus. And so the cowardly are mentioned first the unbelieving, the vile. We have people in our, in our politics, but also in our comedians that are just vile. And God goes, no, this is not, this is not acceptable. And again, earlier in the New Testament, we're told that God does not like that, nor does he like people who approve of that. So we have to pull ourselves back from some of these things. Um, really all of these things if you don't want to you know smell sulfur um now the big bride scene uh, and it's it's pretty cool verse 9 
one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I'll show you the bride, the, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain high, great, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I always think of um, the first time I saw close encounters of the third kind, or the first time you saw Independence Day, that big ship was much bigger than you expected it to be, this big thing of light. Um, but it, God's, that's not this, all right. Um, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All right, you're being, you're being given a beautiful, wonderful, and very rare glimpse into the other. Not into the future, but into reality. The angel didn't say, this will all come down one day. This will all matter to you guys when you're dead. No, this is a present reality. Remember that those of us who play around in science know that dark matter and dark energy make up far more than 90% of the universe. There is some argument about whether it's 93% or 97% or somewhere in between, but most of the universe. And we've never seen it. We can't measure it. What we, we know it's there because of the effect on the things that we do see. And in fact, some of those effects are so squirrely and odd that it makes us question our normal physics. So we work within quantum physics trying to figure out why things get so bizarre when things go very large or very big. And there's nobody bigger than God and there's no place he's too big to get. So small, big, he permeates the universe. He is the central fact of the universe. So you're seeing here something that our human eyes were not designed to see. Therefore, it had to be done in this way. Um, our eyes are, are designed to, to see certain spectrums of light and not others. I used to wonder about that. Why, why can't I do infrared? Why can't I do x-ray? Why can't I do? And the reason is, don't need it. You don't need it to do what you do. We can design machines if we want to see those other things. But your eyes to survive in this wild world that, according to Thomas Hobbes, is nasty, brutish, and short, you, um, <clears throat> you don't need that. Now birds, we, uh, we rescued parrots for a while, and uh, eight years, and we love parrots at our house. We don't have any right now because we're getting old and we're not gonna, a parrot's gonna outlive us, so we don't wanna do that to a parrot. Long story, it'll be fun one day. We'll talk, we'll laugh. Anyway, birds see colors that you don't see, and they see them coming off of you and other creatures. Because birds are very susceptible to enemies. They have to have eyes that see something that ours do not. That's why their eyes are off on the sides. And that's why they go quiet. That's why they grow up super fast. I've had people say, why don't you ever see baby pigeons? You do. They're just, they look as big as mom and dad. They don't stay a little long because they're susceptible to enemies. So this is a survival thing. Anyway. When my wife would have a headache, 
uh, our parrot knew, uh, even before she mentioned it and before I could know it, the bird would go to her and start doing that little aw, aw thing that they'll do in their throat and just kind of pulling a strand of hair at a time, kind of preening her and uh, letting her know she knew she hurt. When my wife had surgery, the bird knew where and when she hurt and would go to that place and fight its way into the room to, to take care of her, to preen and be with the flock. We don't see that. It'd be helpful to have a bird that could do that and also whisper you know, over to you, that person's lying, that person's, that would be very helpful. Our eyes can't see heaven, but God's eyes can. And he's giving us a vision of how beautiful it is. This is, this is the holy city of God and we are the city. This is the bride of Christ. This, is, we, are the, we are his bride. The walls and the foundations are the, the, you know, the, the teachings of the apostles and you have the names of the tribes on the gates. So should we, um, like the old spiritual song, there are 12 gates to the city. I love that old spiritual, by the way. Sing it, sing it, sing it. But literally, no. Why, why would I say that after just reading this? Because 12 tribes of Israel was a way of saying something. It means the people of God. In the Bible list of tribes, you go all the way down to 10 and you can go all the way up past 16. It's different names, different splitting. So God doesn't, isn't trying to be a literalist here. So don't you be a literalist. And 12 apostles. Were there 12 apostles? Wasn't there also Matthias and Paul and most likely Junia? The number 12 is not a magical number. It's just a way of saying we are built upon the teachings of God and we and the people that enter are the people of God. That's it. That's better even because that includes you. Uh, it includes me. Let's, um, <clears throat> by the way, not only are our eyes not able to always understand this, Paul saw stuff whenever he had his death experience and came back and he said, I saw things it's not lawful for men to talk about. Wow, cool. Well, here we go. <clears throat> this, this passage is weird. Um, because people, first of all, it's hard to read. Never assign this passage to anybody in church. They will hate you forever. Almost like assigning a list of nations or something in Chronicles. Um, in chapter 21, verses 15 through 21. <clears throat> By the way, a lot, <clears throat> a lot of these names of the different uh, gems are guesses. <clears throat> They're just not used enough in ancient literature for us to be certain what stone is being referred to. So these are, these are guesses. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So it's like a cube, in other words. <clears throat> if cubes don't exist, in God's space. These are all just symbolic, okay? Meant to impress you because you should be impressed. They met, the angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. 
those brights among you, 144 is 12 times 12. So once again, foundations of the teachings, that is what protects us, that is what defines us. Um, the wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold is pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Here we go. <clears throat> the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was as gold, as pure as transparent glass. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so is this city literally 12,000 stadia? No. It's their way of saying 12 times a thousand. In other words, based on the teachings of God, and it's the biggest thing you'll ever see. They didn't, remember, they did not have a number larger than a thousand. And so they would multiply thousands to make a point. The... Um, this is a big place. Why? Because God's gonna save a lot more people than we might think. That's, Jesus said he had sheep, his father had sheep and other pastures that the Jews didn't even know about. He's, the Lord says he's not willing that any should perish. Yes, I'm aware that Jesus said that the, uh, the path to heaven is twisted. It's, you know, straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. So twisted and difficult and narrow and few there be that find it it's very true but he also said that god sent his spirit out to find people right now by the way you may be able to hear a ton of fire engines have just gone by um so whoever they are we pray for them and their safety uh, the firefighters and the people um, that are evidently in peril many of these precious stones like i said are just guesses let's not try to act like the gates of God, uh, the heaven are made truly out of a single pearl. All of this is figurative language, symbolic language, just to hit you and get pictures in your head. Um, the point is where God dwells is a place of incomparable beauty and we are already there and we're going there, both. Why? Because he loves us. Well, let's take a look at um, verses 22 through 27. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your temples here are a thing of the past. In some ways they are now, and that we are not called to build a big temple and sink millions of dollars into real estate so that we can start a church that's just slightly different than a church two blocks away. We don't build earthly temples, we are the temples. The people are the temples of God. We are highly mobile temples of God and we are to take our portable faith with us wherever we go. My, my father passed last year, but <clears throat> as we were growing up, he would, um, every morning at breakfast, we had to sing 
a song. I hated that, <clears throat> really did. But this is supposed to get us really going. And, and so we would sing usually doxology um, or we would sing something like that. But every time we got in the car to go anywhere, every time, he would lead the first verse of take the name of Jesus with you. Great sentiment. <clears throat> Next line, child of sorrow and of woe. I'm going, whoa. You know, seven years old and you're thinking, I'm a child of sorrow and woe? And yeah, I probably did cause some, some sorrow and woe, if I'm being honest. We are to take the name of Jesus with us. And, and so dad had a point. I think uh, we, we often forget that we're supposed to be the temples. Jesus didn't say go into all the world and invite them to your temple. He said, go into all the world, teach. Make them followers of Jesus then baptize them and keep teaching. We, we forget that, we really do. Regardless, this is a beautiful picture. Uh, temples are a thing of the past there because uh, we don't need them, God is there. And outside sources of light are not needed, you know, suns and stars, and that's all not necessary anymore. Light and darkness, that's all something in this economy, this physics set. But we're going beyond that, and we're already there. That's what he's trying to push at us here. Hebrews 12 does the same thing. Take a look, and it seems like he's jumping all over the place. No, he's saying we are all over the place, and all of these people are here. It's a different reality when Christ makes all things new. This is a, <clears throat> this is a different place. Now, verse 27, does that, does that, does that, concern you. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't let it trouble you. Why? The saved are saved because God refuses to see their faults and has, has forgiven them their sins. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse, was it 17? Verse 17, yeah. He says, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. We're told he will blot out our sins. They'll be unreadable. Again, <clears throat> the impure here are those who do shameful, deceitful things and refuse to, to bow to Christ, either in this life or the one to come. So. They're not going to come in the city. We're not going to have bad neighbors in the city. And if you're a bad neighbor, cut it out. Um, this is a, it's not as if we get casual and say, all right, God's going to forgive me. And he, he doesn't see me as impure and alike. So I'm going to kind of chill on that whole being good thing. No, no. The love of my wife drives me to do more for her. Even after 41 years of marriage, I want to do more for her. I want to find another way to make her happy. It's not like she's walking little lane and make me happy. No, that's just because of love. She makes me happy, I make her happy. We work on that. And all of you therapists right now that are going, another person is not responsible for your happiness. We know. Will you just let us talk? <laughs> okay. I used to be a shrink too. I know shrinkish, shrinkitude linguistics. Stop it. 
we, uh, did you notice there's not a juxtaposition here? Or there is one, but it's really weird. The impure, shameful, deceitful, and the pure, holy, and the, nope. Okay, the impure, the shameful, the deceitful, and people who God loves and their names in the book of life. Well, who's in charge of the book of life? He is, and he promises to save you if you follow Jesus. Not the best you can follow him, because nobody ever has. Or, but don't sin, because nobody's ever pulled that one off either. We need a savior. Acknowledging you need that savior. Being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And walking as a temple of Christ through your life from now on. Loving everybody you meet, judging none of them. Wow. That means you get to live in the holy city now. And later, where do you see what your new eyes can see? Hope you're enjoying the ride. Next week, our last chapter in Revelation. Not sure what we're going to do next, but we'll do something. God bless.